Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and you can probably hear my voice is starting to go a little bit. Uh, that is because uh, I am just coming off of the inaugural Women in PT Summit, and it was incredible. I mean, I kind of feel like this must be what it's like to plan a wedding. You know, you have a couple months, you have all these details, and then all of a sudden it's over in a day. You know you were there, and yet you kind of can't process it all for a couple of days, which is exactly how I feel. And and I'm two days removed from, from the summit now. And looking back on it, I'm just so proud to have been a part of planning this wonderful day with Sandy Hilton and Erica Mello and getting together a group of speakers, a wonderful group of attendees, both men and women, I might add. Um, and it was just a positive day of learning and sharing. And I just, it was great. I mean, every single talk was amazing. It had a flow that wasn't even 100% planned, but that's kind of what happened. You know, we started with our first keynote speaker, Dr. Shaula Yamini, and it morphed right through the morning, through a panel discussion and through our version of TED Talks, which we called Power Talks. Uh, great collaboration and networking during lunch. And then after lunch, we had our second keynote speaker, Mandy Antonacci, which then flowed right into three more power talks and then another panel. And it was just kind of how to start to how to find your voice and then finally to how to get it out there into the world. And, and it was, it just came together so perfectly that we were at at, in a beautiful space in New York City, and questions from everyone in the audience were so thoughtful, and and I feel like maybe some people had the idea that this Women in PT Summit was going to be a day of bashing the under, other gender, and it was none of that. There was no negativity in the crowd. It was talking about experiences and and how to get through them in a positive way and kind of spread the light around, and it was... It was really something to see, and I'm still a little dazed about the whole thing, but so happy and proud that it went off without a hitch. Um, and I, I couldn't be, I couldn't, I just couldn't be happier, and couldn't be more proud of all the hard work that went into it. And we had just the best. It was the best group of people, and the networking was amazing. I, I saw students, you know, networking with very seasoned PTs, and now they, they're going to... One student's on her uh, a clinical uh, in Pennsylvania, and she was able to network to shadow other therapists in the area. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Lifting each other up. So it was a great day, and everything was videoed. We're going to have a professional video. Once it's up and ready to go, I'll let you guys know how to get your hands on it, because it was awesome. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone involved, and and it, it, it was just a wonderful day. And and if you want to try and kind of get an idea of everything that happened, go to Twitter, follow the hashtag Women in PT, and it's great. And Sandy Hilson also did a Storify, um, and we were trending on Twitter all day. All day long, even an hour and a half afterwards, the hashtag women in PT hashtag, it was trending 
all day long. I mean, that's amazing. It's the Friday before one of the biggest elections uh, in the United States, and the Women in PT Summit was trending all day. So super proud. Okay, now getting to this, to today's episode. You guys asked Jason Silvernail a whole bunch of questions online, and he answered half of them. Anyway, he answered half of them today. He's going to answer the other half next week. It's a two-parter because there was just too much to talk about. So if you don't know who Jason Silvernail is, he qualified with a Master of Physical Therapy degree from the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania in 1997, and he has been in practice as a physical therapist since then. He completed his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree in 2006. He was selected for the prestigious Army Baylor Doctoral Fellowship in Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy at Fort Sam Houston for subspecialty training and graduated in 2010, earning him both a Doctor of Science degree from Baylor University and fellow status in the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. He is a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist from the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties and a Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He is a career military officer practicing in the U.S. Army since 1998 and has been stationed across the United States, Europe, Middle East, and in Afghanistan. Dr. Silvernail has worked with a wide variety of patient populations and settings, including orthopedic sports, chronic pain, amputee, and neurological rehabilitation and strength and conditioning. A clinician and researcher, he has published clinical commentaries and original research in the medical literature, including the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, Manual Therapy, the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy, and has a prominent professional presence online where you can connect with him on Twitter or Facebook. It's all in the show notes. Just go over to it. And he is married to Carolyn Silvernail, who's awesome and also a graduate student at American University with degrees in exercise science, digital film, and in music performance. And they live together in Northern Virginia. So this was great. You guys asked a whole bunch of questions. He answered them. I learned a lot. I know you guys will learn a lot. So please enjoy today's episode with Dr. Jason Silvernail. Hey, Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you on. Hey, Karen. Thanks. It's great to be back. And before we get started, is there anything you'd like to say, anything you'd like to get off your chest? Yeah. Uh, in addition to how pleased I am to, again, be back on your podcast, uh, because I am an active duty uh, Army officer, uh, I've got to give you my disclaimer, which is everything that I say and talk about today are my personal opinions and are not to be construed as reflecting the official policy or position of the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Fantastic. That's my disclaimer. Fantastic. All right. So today's episode is all about an Ask Jason Anything, so an AJA episode. Um, And we went to social media, and we definitely got a lot of questions. And most of them are surrounding the biopsychosocial model, manual therapy, pain science. Um, So we're going to kind of start with that, and then we will segue into a lot of the other questions as well. But let's start out with... What do you see as the ideal integration of manual therapy into a biopsychosocial framework of patient care? From Mark Cardella. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry. I feel like I butchered the name. 
Sorry, well, Mark. I'll, I'll say it as Mark Cargello, so now we pronounce it both ways. So one, one of those two ways is bound to be right. It's like a gif uh, or a gif. I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, with a name like Silvernail, you try to get other people's names right. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we're doing our best over here. Uh, so I would say big picture, boy, that is a loaded question. So one of the things that, uh, that I experience some frustration in when I talk to people about manual therapy is that I get a lot of folks who don't have a lot of um, training in manual therapy who feel like it's like some extra thing that we just tack on to, to what it is we're doing. So, okay, evaluation is complete. I'm going to talk to you about your options. No, excuse me, everyone. Attention in the clinic. I'm now going to apply some manual therapy. And it just... The, the, the whole way that we examine and treat patients just does not fit that kind of concept. You know, my, my colleagues, uh, uh, Sarah Baker et al., just published the script clinical reasoning tool that basically lines up and explains the, uh, the clinical reasoning and clinical approach we use in the manual therapy fellowship program that I graduated from at Army Baylor. And that kind of gives people a sense of what, what our approach looks like. So when I examine people it's, you know, that there's, there's manual therapy in that exam. It fits into my differential diagnosis and all those other things. And it's hard for me to kind of separate that out. I would say, um, big picture, if we look at the pain mechanisms research of uh, Keith Smart et al., and they basically divided pain clinically by mechanism into three broad categories nociceptive, neuropathic, and central sensitization. So I think that manual therapy for me is most relevant in people who have nociceptive origin pain. These are people whose pain changes with movement and position, and they can alter their pain with use and activity. And these are people who I believe that I am most likely to help with manual and manipulative therapy as part of my active therapy approach that includes graded exercise and progressive exposure and you know and all those other things. People who I examine who at the end of the clinical encounter, Maitland might call it the nature of their disorder. If I think the nature of their disorder is a neuropathic presentation or a central sensitization uh, presentation, I'm much less likely to be confident that manual therapy will play a large role in their uh, in their recovery, and um, so I think that those that kind of big picture that's where I'm at. If I can um, classify someone as nociceptive pain, if I can change their pain or change their function in clinic immediately on the exam table with an ex- with a manual therapy examination and treatment process, I think I am much more likely to continue to use manual therapy with them. If I try those things and I try to, and say they've got a shoulder disorder and I move their shoulder different ways and I try to do different things and nothing that I do manual therapy wise seems to change their symptoms over a couple of visits, that person just isn't gonna get a lot of manual therapy. They're gonna get a primarily exercise-based approach and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I will go you know, half a day, a full day. I will, go, I will go a full clinic day and not do quote unquote manual therapy with somebody uh, in in the office, I'll just but it's part of my examination process. So if you've got pain in your shoulder area, how do I determine? How do I test and determine whether or not you have a contribution of your symptoms from the cervical spine? Unless I manually examine your neck and move your neck both actively and passively, I can't be sure that that's the case. So it is integrated into my whole differential diagnostic process. 
And so it's not possible for me to sort of separate out manual therapy from that piece of it. But I would say that manual therapy approach really helps me narrow down referred pain. It helps me develop and test hypotheses about the mechanisms of a patient's pain, whether it's neuropathic, uh, nociceptive, or central sensitization. And it is a tremendous boon to my uh, differential diagnosis and overall management. And I think I've found that that approach will help me find problems that other people miss and will help me get patients to the to their clinical destination as quick as possible, even if it doesn't involve manual therapy treatment, because it's integrated into my decision-making process. And, and I know that's a big answer, but there was a yeah, big question. Yeah, sure. no, that was a great answer. So my follow-up question to that is, so we know in your examination when you would use manual therapy. So you've done something and you've made a change, maybe within session or maybe within a session or two. How do you, what do you do if that doesn't happen? How do you differentiate then between central sensitization and neuropathic pain? Yeah, great question. So um, I think, you know, if people aren't already familiar with Keith Smart's research group and the mechanistic studies that they've done on the, um, on the clinical testing and clinical decision-making about these mechanisms of pain, that is a very worthwhile body of literature to check out. And we can include a couple links to some of those uh, uh, files on the podcast. Uh, it is extremely valuable. They've got, they've got pretty discreet clinical decision-making rules that you can use to help you come to that conclusion. Neuropathic pain is pain that's um, you know, the result of or the consequence of a direct insult or lesion to the nervous system. And so you think about radiculopathy, you think about myelopathy. Uh, th these are examples of neuropathic pain, right? And so... Um, those are ways that we can kind of differentiate those. People who've got central sensitization, their pain doesn't change as much with position or use. It's not clearly um, associated with an injury or lesion of the nervous system. Uh, the pain uh, referral patterns or the ways in which the pain behaves does not suggest that it's connected to a, a discrete neural structure. It doesn't, doesn't have like a mechanical type response. It is a little bit more widespread. It is not uh, the pain response is not consistent with the level of uh, disturbance or activity that the patient has. So they're a little bit active and they get a huge symptom spike. That's an example of that mismatch. And those are things that we can clinically reason as being, uh, you know, central sensitization. And so I've got a couple of colleagues who are like, you know, maybe a little bit more into the pain science of this will say, well, we haven't validated the difference between those three with quantitative sensory testing. And, you know, we haven't, we don't have a hundred percent solid framework and they're hundred percent right about that. But in terms of a, an approach that you can use immediately in the clinic that is practical clinically and that helps you make better decisions as a clinician, I mean, there, there's gold in those papers and they are so relevant to what people do in the clinic with their patients on a day-to-day -day basis. And can you not find a lot of that information out just in your initial interview with the patient? Yeah, absolutely. And so during your initial interview, you know, you can, some of those things that you just said about the difference between neuropathic and, and nociceptive versus central sensitization, you can tease that out during the interview to then make your evaluation a little more laser focused based on perhaps a hypothesis you might have gotten from the interview. Because, you know, a lot of people will say, well, how can I do all of this in one hour and 45 minutes? And I think it kind of starts with that good interview. And then you can kind of, like I said, laser point your uh, evaluation then based on that 
hypothesis from what you got from the patient, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, uh, you know, in my approach that I learned at Army Baylor is very much a a hypothesis driven, hypothetical, deductive kind of process. And it's exactly what you're describing. Uh, And actually, the recent publication of that script tool helps people exactly say, okay, well, I hear Silvernail talking about all this pain science and manual therapy and stuff. What does this actually look like in clinic? Yeah, go grab that paper and look at the script tool. That's Those are exactly the mental steps that I take. You know, I, I have an initial blush from my interview, uh, and I, I develop my initial set of hypotheses, and I narrow those down with more specific questioning. And then by the time the questioning is over, once I've had a couple of decision steps, I only examine patients to the degree I need to to narrow down my, my hypotheses. I do not do any evaluation at all that does not help me narrow my hypotheses because that's a waste of time. And far too many clinicians don't have a a structured model to go by, and they are doing these huge physical exams, most of which don't tell them anything useful about what they need to do for their patient, most of which don't help advance their differential diagnosis, most of which don't help them move their hypotheses up or down on their likelihood and don't lead to a good treatment direction. And a big part of my fellowship training experience was getting a lot of that sort of hammered out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, with practice and, and like you said, reading some of these papers by Keith Smart and others will kind of help people. And we'll have all those links uh, over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com in the show notes. Um, but I think it's so vitally important to be able to interview that patient, create that hypothesis, and narrow things down. That's how you get things done in 45 minutes or an hour. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It, is a, it is a very close attention paid to exactly how you spend your time. And when I entered fellowship training before I had advanced training, I mean, that, that first visit with that patient, oh, man, it was all over the place. I mean, there was just so much said, so much done that didn't really help me. And by the time I was done, uh, it got to be a game with my colleagues at fellowship is like, how like how few questions could you ask to get where you wanted? Like what what it was the absolute bare minimum that you needed to do to do business that day, and yeah. it almost got to be like a friendly competition as to as to how short you could make your clinical process. If it's very trimmed down to the essentials, you really don't need a lot of time, but you have to pay attention to what you're doing, and you have to use a framework, and you have to have enough training and experience to follow that framework consistently. And that's what helps you make uh, good decisions in the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it does take some experience. So for all you new grads, don't be discouraged and, and don't think that it's this daunting task that you're never going to master. I mean, like you said, I remember, you know, before getting a better framework for it, like my initial evals were just like a hot mess yep. of throwing everything. It's like the kitchen sink interview, the kitchen yep. sink evaluation, you know? Yep. And and now it's a little of that easier. training. You you get um, you see other people make some of those same mistakes, and you just you get so like in our fellowship training, it was a there was just a there was just a curtain between the, the the four of us, and so we could hear each other interviewing patients. I learned a ton just listening to my colleagues, but also you would go and hear people who hadn't had that training, and some of whom some of whom were were excellent, but some of whom were were not so good, 
And you, you know, at some point you, you can almost feel yourself yelling out questions. Like, you know, I remember this patient asking a question about some car accident, a patient had had who had had neck pain for like 15 years. And they're like, well, how fast was the car going? And, and, and I was like, what color was the car? Ask them what color the car was. You know, like just, what was the make and model? That makes a big difference. Yeah, exactly. Let's ask, let's, let's waste our valuable clinical time on yet another pointless question that does not help me engage the patient. It does not help me create a therapeutic alliance. It does not help me refine or narrow my differential diagnosis list. And it's basically just a huge waste of time. Right. And then these same people are the ones who complain at the end of the day that they don't have enough time to do documentation and all that other stuff. They're doing way more than they need to do. And it's stuff that just isn't giving them the value. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, great, excellent, excellent tips there. So let's kind of stick with the biopsychosocial model and pain science models. So, and I think this also goes well with our initial evaluation, right? So okay. Tara Gwaltney, who's just the sweetest person alive, she's from Tennessee, um, and her question was, what's the best patient education regarding pain science to give our patients on day one to enhance understanding and patient buy-in? So again, let's not waste our time. Let's not yep. waste our patients' time. So go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, I... You know, I, I, you know, similarly to my to our discussion before, where people people talk about manual therapy like it's the separate body of knowledge that is separate from the rest of our clinical processes. It's separate from everything else we do in clinic. It's like, okay, when would you stop what you're doing and go over here to this thing called manual therapy and pull it out of the drawer and use it? It's just like, like when people ask those questions, it. It, it, it's such a misunderstanding of how I see manual therapy and how people like me, and there are a lot of people like me who are trained in the manual model who feel this way. Uh, most of them are at the AOMP conf conference every year. Uh, so there's a conference full of these folks. And I see pain science the same way. And they say, look, well, what would the pain science crowd do? Or what, what pain science stuff should I know? It's like, okay, let me stop and go over to this drawer, pull it open and pull this pain science thing out. And then, well, it's, it's really not like that. One of the things that I think that has been some of the most helpful feedback I've been able to give students about their initial evaluation is maybe to leave behind some of the not so helpful ideas they have about what they have to do on day one. So they have this idea that this, the day one visit is, is something called an eval and the eval has to include X number of things or that's not correct. And I would say the first thing we need to do is just get rid of that idea. So there are two things I need to do on day one. There are two things I need to do on, on, the, on the evaluation day. Number one is I need to make some effort at a differential diagnosis to determine whether this patient belongs in my clinic. Do you have back pain or might you have a pulmonary embolus? Right? So I need to determine if this patient's appropriate for services or if they need emergent medical care or rapid medical care in some other way. And I know some people are kind of rolling their eyes like, oh, that never happens. Yeah, that actually happens a lot. Uh, the briefest look at the literature will help you understand that a little bit, right? And so I think that's number one, right? And I, I would say that with a good medical history, with a good uh, patient medical history screening form and body chart, you don't need a lot of time and effort to do that. You can create clinical processes like that medical screening form and like that body chart that really help you make those decisions. And the second thing is you've got to have a good therapeutic alliance with your patient. You have to connect with that patient and they have to believe that you are there to help them. Those are the only two things you have to do that day. You don't have to go through all your hypotheses. 
you don't have to come up with the one thing that's wrong with that person. You don't have to come up with exactly what you need to do for them. All you need to do are those two things. You need to do that basic differential diagnosis, and you need to engage your patient in a therapeutic alliance. You do those two things, and day one is a success. That's going to set you up for success for the rest of that clinical encounter series that you have with that patient and that episode of care. So I would say from the pain science perspective, and I'm using I'm using my fingers as air quotes, which we can't see because we're on audio. Uh, when, when you use that pain science perspective, that's what you need to do is you need to, you need to engage the patient and create a therapeutic alliance on day one. That's the pain science thing you can do on day one that helps make the rest of that successful. If you think you need to do therapeutic neuroscience education, if you think you need to be, hi, I'm your physical therapist, I'm 23, and let me explain to you why pain is in the brain on day one, bad idea, right? <laughs> because that's not going to work. You don't have credibility with people. You don't have a therapeutic alliance. None of those things are in place. And so, you know, I mentioned the, the age because I found people listen to me a lot more when I got into my 30s and started getting gray hair and wrinkles, and now I have a few more in my 40s, and I get listened to a lot more, and I think a big part of it, and there, there's something to all of that. So if you're a young professional and you look young, and you look like maybe somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience, just realize that that's part of your clinical package. Embrace it and, and be aware of that. Yeah, I, and that's absolutely true. When I first graduated from college, I was 22 when I graduated from PT school and started working in a hospital. And most people, the question that I got asked the most from my patients is, oh, so are you planning on go to, going to school for this? Yeah. And I would wow. say, yeah, no, 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 I already graduated. And they're like, no, we mean college. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean <laughs> college too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm already, I graduated. And so that is, but that's a real issue for a lot of people. When you look young, it's definitely, it's, it's. A double-edged sword. It's great yeah. in some respects, but then sometimes in the clinic, it's a bit of a hurdle to get over because people are people can be a little wary yeah. of sort of taking that of taking that advice. Don't you think? Absolutely. I think there are definitely things that you can do to minimize the impact and effect of those sorts of things as a clinician. And I think um, you know, I, I just came from the Virginia PT Association Student Conclave. What a great experience. The student SIG was amazing. One of the things I noticed, and Karen, you and I graduated, you know, right, right about the same time from school. And so, like, when you and I graduated from PT school in, well, we'll just say the late 90s. We wanted to put exact year on it, right? Oh, it's uh, okay. I was at National Student Conclave, and I put a year on it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so yeah. you graduated in the late 90s. It was not unusual for PTs and PT students to be at professional conferences and workout clubs. But the people in... Uh, you know, at the, at the VPTA, they were dressed professionally. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact of that. We've got social science, and Lauren Ramosley even reviews this in some of his courses, things like lab coats, ties, or professional attire in some way. You know, it, it just, they just looked like they were at a professional conference. And then that, that modulates or reduces the impact of their youth in creating a package of, hey, I am a resource, I am a coach, I am here to help you, and you should listen to me because I'm credible, right? And all of those things can be in place, and there's some things that we can do, you can do if you're a young professional, to offset that. And, you know, one of, it, one of which is to, you know, dress appropriately for a professional setting. You know? Yeah, and, and again, this all kind of ties into creating that therapeutic alliance on day one. Mm-hmm. 
because sometimes, I mean, let's be honest, that, that is not, that can be a little daunting and can be a little difficult. And if you don't create that therapeutic alliance on day one and you want to start talking about, like you said, pain science stuff, it's all in your head, but not the way that you think and all this stuff, they are going to be like, what are you talking about? You know, they are not going to buy in. So that that not only that is important, but one of the things I covered at BPTA was like, you know, students are busy. Students have got a lot of stuff on their plate. And so I put up the pictures of some of the some of the books about therapeutic neuroscience education. You know, I mean, uh, Adrian Lowe's stuff was up there. Lorimer stuff was up there. David Butler's stuff was up there. Like how many people have read these books? I get maybe two or three. I know your hand is raised right now, Karen. Right. Only a couple of people read those books, not because they're bad people, because they're super busy and they're, and they're students. So the question is, what can we do in a pain science perspective? You know, again, to use that, you know, scare quotes around pain science, you know, to help engage with patients if we don't know that material. You don't have to know the difference between C uh, and A delta fibers to be able to help someone in chronic pain. You don't be, have to be able to explain the uh, impact of the HPA axis on the diurnal variation of their symptoms and how many nociceptors are noradrenaline sensitive to help a patient in chronic pain. You've got to engage with them. You've got to help them sleep and exercise better. And you've got to kind of build that, that, that therapeutic alliance that returns them to the things that they want to do. You don't have to know a lot of neuroscience to do that. In fact, I'd say you could know very little neuroscience and you could still get there well. And you can still engage with your patient. Yeah. That's, I, that's a big, big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I would agree. And and if you do know the neuroscience, you know the ion channels, you know, you know, descending inhibition and how all of that works, you then still have to be able to effectively and simply explain that to your patient. Because yep. if you explain that to your patient in a way that is very sciencey, you're gonna lose that patient. Yep. You know what I mean? And so, also can possibly perceive it as you telling them their pain isn't real or that it's all in their head. Oh, yeah. My suggestion for people who are new to this is don't even go down that road. Don't even go down that road. Don't even, you don't even have to talk about neuroscience with people. You got to engage with your patient. You got to help them exercise and sleep because we know those are important for pain. And you've got to return them to the things that they want to do. So there's an interesting editorial, and we'll put a link to it in the podcast notes, called Time to Flip the Pain Curriculum. It was a fascinating editorial. And they talked about the training of, uh, about how we learn about pain in health professional programs. You know what's funny? They always start at the receptor level. Did you ever notice that? They always start at the nociceptor. They start at the least important thing for the patient, and that's where they start. We ought to be starting the other way around. We ought to be starting with how does it affect the patient socially? How does it affect them uh, occupationally? What are, what are some of the psychological and social impacts of those pain? And how can you engage with them as a person and say, look, look, I care about you. I want, you to, I want to, to be able to be a resource for you and provide you a better life. I'm credible in doing that. We are going to work together on a solution. Here's how I can help you exercise again. I mean, there's lots of great things for pain. Yeah. Here's how I'm going to help you sleep better. And we know that is lots of great things for pain. Here's how I'm going to return to you the things that you want to do. And we're going to make this relevant to what your goals are. And that's extremely patient-centered. It's completely biopsychosocial BPS model. And it doesn't have a damn thing to do with ion channels or descending inhibition. And maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and, and again, and I think taking some cues from 
Bronnie Thompson and Kevin Vowles and now Eric Kruger um, on really understanding the patient's values, you know, and, and that is even somewhat different than their goals. So yep. understanding the patient, patient values and sorry for this, it's like, I don't understand oh, you what's got going sirens. on. It's okay. It's, it's New York. I get plenty of sirens over here in Northern Virginia. Um, uh, so don't worry too sorry, much. Sorry, everybody. There's a lot, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, to kind of tying into the patient values. And so how would you, when you're with a patient, whether it's day one or day, day two, session one, session two, how do you, cause everyone's like, Oh, what are your goals? But I think sometimes it's beneficial to go beyond goals and, yep. and really understand what their values are. So how do you broach that conversation with someone? Yeah, I, I like to just talk to people as people when we first start. I mean, there's there's no sense in being all clinical about things, first of all. So like, um, so I work at a major medical center here in, uh, in Bethesda, right next to uh, – uh, right next to Washington, D.C. And there's parking is a huge problem in the national capital area right now. And so me, I'll talk about parking. Hey, did you have any trouble parking? And did you get settled okay? You know, already the patient is kind of cued for me to go, okay, what's the matter? What's what's wrong with you? Where's it hurt? I mean, that, that's the last place you need to start. Like, hey, how was parking? How, you know, I know it can be pretty bad. Yeah, come on in, have a seat. So, uh, you know, so um, where, are you, where are you coming in from? Where do you live? Where do you drive from? Is the commute bad? Okay, well, you know, it, you know, it, um, you know, it says here, you, you know, um, you know, so I get, so I'm working with our medical system and some, sometimes I have some more information than most people might have, like, you know, what they do in the military or what their relationship is with the military or something like that. I might even say, so, so what do you do during the day? Oh, well, you know, I work here or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm at home or, oh, okay, great. What, what kind of stuff do you like to do? What, what do you like to do for fun? You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I have, I have asked zero quote unquote clinical questions at this point. I'm just trying to find out what they, what makes that person tick, right? I'm, I mean, you know, what do you do for a living? What do you do during the day? I don't ask them, how are you? Please stop telling people, stop asking people, how are you? It's, it's like, it, it it's like the worst example of, uh, of small talk in action. Um, hi, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming into PT today. So did you find a place to park? Okay. I know it can be pretty crazy out there. So where are you driving in from? Okay. So what, what do you do during the week? Oh, that's cool. How long have you been doing that? Okay. Well, when you're not at work, what, what do you do there? Do you live by yourself or do you live with someone else? I don't ask people if they're married. I don't want to get all that kind of stuff, right? Do you live by yourself or do you live with someone else? Um, you know, what kind of things do you do for fun? You're, I'm, so I'm already gathering information that's useful to help me make a therapeutic alliance with a patient, to help me connect to a patient, and gives me absolutely relevant information that I need if I'm going to help them return to whatever it is they need to help returning to, right? So if I do all my clinical stuff, hi, how are you today? Come on in and sit down. How can I help you? Where does it hurt? And at the end of the day, so what are your goals for therapy? Do you see the difference in that approach? If you let people tell you what's important to them, without asking them that direct question, you might be surprised what you find. Yeah, absolutely. And I always find too that, you know, maybe it doesn't come out on that first session, but the subsequent sessions, maybe session two, session three, all of a sudden it's, hey, you know something? I was thinking about something you said and X, Y, Z, this sort of big yeah. revelation, you know, or something that you can really take and, and, help that patient be, you know, take a bigger part in their therapy or a different way for you to connect with that patient. So I think 
keeping yourself open and not trying to pigeonhole someone. So if someone comes in with knee pain, don't just only talk about the knee. You know, think of that person as a whole, and that will take you a long way. And like you said, two things you have to do on day one, differential diagnosis and engaging the patient for therapeutic alliance. That's a great way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that therapeutic alliance does fall in line with the biopsychosocial model of care. So, all right, next, next question. Um, and this is a biggie. Oh boy! This is a big like, like the other ones weren't. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a this is a big one. Like you, Cargilla. Yes. No. This is not, not from him. This is from Mike, another student. He said, mm -hmm. "What do you think is happening during manual therapy? Can you please discuss or explain some basics regarding non-nociceptive pain, which I think we covered a little bit already." Yep. Um, but what do you think is happening during manual therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. So what I first want to do is I'm happy to give the answer to this question, but I would tell you that there, there are good papers by people far more versed in the, the primary literature than I. Uh, and so one of the, probably the first paper that comes to mind is Joel Bialowski's article from 2008 about the mechanisms of manual therapy and musculoskeletal pain. And if you're interested in manual therapy mechanisms, I would argue that is stop number one in your journey to understand what it is that happens. And so I kind of put things in terms of, I mean, I like that Keith Smart et al., uh, you know, division of pain mechanisms in terms of those three, nociceptive, neuropathic, central sensitization. Uh, Keith, brother, I need to buy you a drink. Uh, so... First off, for people with nociceptive pain, if I, you know, if you've got shoulder pain, say, and I treat your shoulder or treat your neck, and your shoulder moves differently and it feels differently after that, after that intervention, the question is, what what's going on there? Well, let's let's do what I recommended. Let's flip the pain curriculum and instead of zooming down to the receptor, let's go big picture and think big picture human. So number one. Um, we got to know there's some nonspecific effects going, which is just a nice way to say placebo, right? So they're here. They're in a therapeutic environment. We're going through a ritual of care. I am standing in front of them. I have made efforts, you know, consciously or not, to show that I am a credible healing person who's here to help them. And by doing something to them, I'm engaging in that therapeutic act. And there's some, some placebo associated with that. Nobody should should doubt or question that. And that placebo is just as relevant to manual therapy as it is to exercise and education or dry needling or taping or, you know, ultrasound or stim or, you know, whatever, whatever approach people want to take, right? Or strength training or yoga or, or whatever approach people have. There's an element of that nonspecific effect we can't get rid of and that's okay, right? So that's big picture. That's one thing that, that we have going for us. Um, another thing to, to kind of go back down to the receptor level, if they've got nociceptive pain, it's certainly possible that as a result of my treatment, we are decreasing the mechanical, uh, pressure they have on mechanically sensitive nerve tissue that's driving their nociceptive experience. So we're actually reducing the nociception by reducing that nociceptive afferent from the periphery to their brain. That is certainly possible. Now, are we changing connective tissue as we do that? No, I don't think there's any evidence that that's happening. I don't think we're we're not remodeling fascia or muscle or tendon or joints or anything like that. Uh, but certainly, we're creating a, a kind of reflexive effect 
both in terms of nonspecific effects and in terms of specific effects at the nociceptor level. Those are all very, uh, um, very viable models. We could be increasing our descending inhibition, uh, you know, from the from the brain down to the spinal cord. And there's a couple of different places in the nervous system that that happens, both at the spinal cord, uh, dorsal root ganglion. I'm trying not to say. Uh, I'm trying to say posterior root ganglia now, old dogs, new tricks. Uh, and so some of those things are definitely in place. Now, when it comes to neuropathic pain presentations, it's certainly possible that by using manual therapy, for example, a neurodynamic type of approach, I'm actually improving the health of the nervous tissue. I'm improving its blood supply. You realize that how sensitive nerve tissue is to lack of blood supply. And if you've read anything by David Butler or anybody or Mike Shacklock or anybody like that, you can start to appreciate how quickly the nervous tissue can respond to loss of blood supply, and conversely, how quickly it can improve when you change local conditions. So it's certainly possible that I'm making the nervous tissue more healthy as, a, uh, as part of my process. Now, when we're talking about um, so folks with central sensitization, <coughs> excuse me, so we're probably talking about much more in terms of nonspecific effects we're talking about altering pain memories in terms of I was doing this thing before that was painful. Now I'm doing this thing and it's not so painful and I'm creating a new learning environment for the patient. I'm providing graded exposure and, and I'm doing some of those other big picture things. You can make the argument is exercise better than manual therapy for those things. I don't know the answer to that question and neither does anyone else. So we, we've all got ways that we can engage that exposure therapy process. And we've also got our all the talking we've done with the patient, all the all the patient education that we've provided, and there's an element of what can be called, you know, that acceptance and commitment therapy that I that I heard so much about from you know from Bronnie or from Kevin Valls or from you know Eric Kruger who talk about it's okay to just to at some level accept some level of pain in the service of living your values as a patient, in the service of living a return to function that we need to encourage for the patient. And that's very patient-centered, and it's entirely consistent with the, no, with the neuroscience. And it, I don't have to know anything about the me mechanisms of nociception to help get me there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you kind of brought that up there, that I can't believe all these signs. This is unbelievable. Anyway, so, sorry, sorry, everyone. I now know that it's very, very loud on the, on the uh, podcast, but... You know, it's it's New York. It's charming, right? That's so. That, so they tell maybe? me. Maybe I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I think that's a, a great answer to what you think is happening during manual therapy, broken down into kind of those three different tracks. I don't want to call them categories. Three different yep. tracks of patients. And check that by all means. Check some of those uh, some of those manual therapy mechanisms papers. There, there are folks who are a lot more well read in the primary literature than I am, who go into you know some pretty good detail about all the possibilities. So if that's <clears> something <throat> that you're interested in, if that's something that appeals to you to try to understand, you know, please do go to those those uh, those expert summaries of the primary literature. That'll you know it'll be a lot more uh, specific and scientifically relevant than, uh, than me talking on a podcast. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. And again, those will all be in the show notes. Um, okay, next question from Nicholas Rolnick. And his, he asks, which is, again, a, a big question, um, what are the limitations and strength, strengths of the pain science perspective? So I don't know if this is a biopsychosocial versus a strictly biomedical, um, yeah. or the quote unquote pain science crowd. I'm, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I, I don't, 
quite know, yeah. but you can take that question any way you'd like. That's a great question. You know what I'm wondering, Karen, is where, where are you hiding the easy questions tonight? What like we're we're getting all the big ones. Do you do you have easy ones there or? All right. Okay. Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry. Yeah, no. There's one from Will Butler that that's okay. going to be pretty easy. It's a softball. Oh, good, good, it's a softball good, question. I, yeah, softball would be good after a yeah. couple of these uh, these yeah. big ones. So the question was, what are the limitations and strength of the pain science perspective? So I think my best response to that is let's just, you know, we talked before about flipping the pain curriculum. Let's just flip that question. So what are the limitations and strengths of the biomechanical approach to patient care? What are the limitations and strengths of the psychological approach to patient care? What are the limitations and what are the strengths of the strength training perspective to patient care? Now, the reason I'm asking all these questions is, um, is to help people realize that all of these things are active at any given moment for any patient. All the biomechanics is in play. All the psychological factors are in play. Social factors, patient's personal experience, the neuroscience aspects of what they're going through, the social aspects of what they're going through, the kinesiological aspects of what they're going through. All of those things are relevant for every patient every day. Our charge is to figure out of all those things, what's most relevant to the person in front of you and how can you engage that person to help them move past what they've got sitting in front of them and move back to life and back to what they need to do. Sometimes a big talk about what pain is and where it comes from and why it's operant, that's a big part of the approach. People with central sensitization of pain, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about that. After we have a great therapeutic alliance, after I've already helped ease some of their symptoms, and I've already established my credibility by helping them move toward their goals at least a little bit. Then I have the credibility to start having the therapeutic alliance discussion, to start having the therapeutic neuroscience education discussion. Then I can say, oh, well, let me tell you about pain. And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's got all these metaphors. And if you haven't read Laura Mosley's book, uh, Painful Yarns, that has just full of great metaphors for patients, you definitely should because it's a, you know, it's a great source of those things. So a lot of patients don't get a lot of neuroscience. People will come like, oh, you're the, you're the crossing the chasm guy. You're the, you're the pain science guy. Let me watch you in practice. And they kind of watch me in practice and they'll go, yeah, you, you didn't, you didn't talk about a lot of neuroscience though. You know, uh, I was kind of hoping you'd say something about, uh, a Delta fibers. Like, yeah, no, that's, that's not relevant to my patient, you know? So I'm doing a lot of those other things. Like some of the things I choose to do or choose not to do are based on patient values and, and patient engagement, moving them forward to their goals, providing a, you know, a, a credible, being a credible coach and, and sort of mentor to help them through that process. My friend Corey Blickenstaff talks about how PTs and, and to a great degree, probably behavioral health folks they're contextual architects. So I am building a context around the patient. I am create, helping the patient create a narrative or a story. I'm helping them tell a story where they are the center of their story, not me. They are the hero in that story. And I am playing the role of the counselor, the guide, you know, the Yoda, whatever you want to say, right? I'm not, I'm not the, the toothbrush. I'm the dentist, right? You know, I'm the person who gives you, who shows you all the possible ways that you can help and guides you on a way to help yourself. 
And that may or may not revol- you know, involve a lot of, you know, quote unquote, pain science stuff. You know, so all these things are kind of woven into our whole approach. Uh, I think that um, that's maybe a roundabout answer. I'm not sure if that's what Nick was getting at. But I mean, I think that when I hear people talk about the pain science camp and the biomechanics camp, you know, I'm really I tend to be pretty frustrated sometimes about how uh, how not representative of reality those sort of artificial divisions are. Uh, yeah, I agree 100 percent on that. Um, and and so I think. From your answer, what I got out of it is the limitations and strengths of pain science perspective seems like the limitations and strengths are dependent upon the person you're evaluating and the therapist doing the evaluating or doing the treating and making those, whether it be pain science perspective, cultural perspective, exercise perspective, biomechanics, kinesiology, making it applicable to the person in front of you. Is that Yes, absolutely. And there are patients for whom we really need to talk about their pain and why they feel the pain they feel and how we can move past that. Those tend to be the central sensitization folks and to a lesser degree, the neuropathic pain folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there are people who I never talk about, oh, pain is in the brain. And let me explain to you what the posterior root ganglion does. Like patients with nociceptive pain, they will never hear that story from me. It just isn't relevant to their problem. But at the same time, I don't create a narrative or a story that focuses solely on biomechanical, postural, and structural things. So even when I talk to people who've got primarily nociceptive pain, I'm still informed by that literature, and I'm still providing people scientifically accurate explanations for their symptoms that fit into their narrative of recovery and that support an appropriate future for them, right? And it's like, oh, well, this is the worst knee I've ever seen. And, you know, come back to me when you need knee surgery and that kind of stuff. Certainly there are people who do that sort of thing, but, you know, you, you don't find too many people in the rehab world that are like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So last kind of biggie, big question. Again, from Tara, uh, top, uh, top five things students must know about pain science translation. So I'm assuming translating pain science from the literature to the clinic? Yeah. Um, well, hmm. Okay. I got to pick five. All right. Let's, um, or, you know, you could pick three. You, yeah. you decide. So, so here's the thing. So, so I'll say, I think the first thing they need to know is that pain science isn't some special additional thing that applies to certain patients, certain, certain times that applies to everybody all the time, just like biomechanics does, just like, you know, psychology does, just like kinesiology does. It applies to every patient every time. The question is how much of that is a big part of that patient's plan of care. And in many patients, it won't be much. And in other patients, it will take the the, the primary focus. That's the first thing. The second thing is please appreciate that in order to, to, to really engage with someone as, as a coach, as a mentor, or as, as somebody who plays the role we need to play in PT, you have got to create a therapeutic alliance with somebody. They've got to feel like you care. They've got to feel like what you're doing is relevant to their problem. You've got to, they've got to feel like you, the two of you are agreed as to what you're doing and what the plan of care involves. That's critically important. I would say the third thing is you don't need to know a lot of neuroscience to do good pain science. If you stick with that patient engagement, 
if you help people exercise and sleep better, and that is simple, basic physical therapy 101. If you don't know much about the data on sleep and sleep hygiene and how sleep impacts a lot of the things that, that we see in the clinic, um, I think you ought to spend some time learning about that, and we can put some resources in the show notes for you to do that. Um, that's a big piece of the puzzle. Uh, I think the fourth thing is you've got to make sure that you are working toward what that patient wants to do, and you have to restore to them the things that are important to them. The only way you know what's important to them is you have to talk with them. You have to establish a relationship with them. And, and no, that does not mean at the tail end of your, your whole evaluation, hey, what are your goals for therapy? No, that's not what I'm talking about, right? You have to know what that person does for fun. You have to know what they do for physical exercise if they do any at all. And if they don't, you've got to help them find something that works for them that they'll stick with. And number five, you've got to know that if you're going to bring people down that therapeutic neuroscience education path, and there are many people who could benefit from that path, you need to make sure that you've got the groundwork laid. And the groundwork laid is in therapeutic alliance, and you are credible as a coach and mentor to that person, and you can help move that forward. If you're noticing a theme in all this stuff about the importance of connecting with somebody else, about the importance of showing that you care and developing that patient relationship, there's a reason for that, and that is the, the second most important thing you can do on day one of this thing we call an eval after the differential diagnosis of important uh, life-threatening stuff happens. The next thing needs to be patient engagement. That sets the stage for everything else that follows. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that is the perfect way to end part one of our interview. And part two of our interview, which will be next week, we will uh, talk a little, we'll get to, then we'll get to the softball question from Will Butler. I promise wait, that'll be next week. Wait, wait, well, it's Halloween. Do we have a Halloween theme question? Okay. This is a Halloween theme question. That's true. We're doing this on Halloween. Well, truth be told for everybody, we're like recording part one and part two at the same time. So it's not like, you know, we're doing this over multiple days. It's just the power of podcasting, I guess. Um, so Will Butler's questions are, what, what is your feeling on candy corn? Candy corn's horrible. Why yeah, would it agree? So sweet. It's oh god. You know, Reese's peanut butter cups, or you know, get the heck out of here and take your candy corn with you. There you go. Answer to Will Butler. So on that note, we'll end part one and we'll start uh well, Jason and I will continue talking tonight, which is Halloween, but you guys will hear part two next week. Let the record show it was you who broke the third wall, not me. Uh, I know, I do it all the time. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Uh so you will get part to next week. So in the meantime, uh, take copious notes, go to the show notes for this. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.